do you get off on weird stuff? Monsters. Halloween. Horror. You've heard of word porn. Car porn. And earth porn. Now prepare yourself for... Monster porn. This can't be a good idea. Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by... The Backwards Hat Guy, Matt Cummins. Why is it raining blood in my house? Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. You have the best fucking funerals, bro! And me, Lita Cultist, Brett Norwood. Today's story is Many Things About Tomorrow by Brett Norwood. What up, motherfucker? You listening to Monster Pwn Podcast. You ready to slide that sweet, sweet tentacle right up? What? <clears throat> Sorry, that's that's our other Monster Porn Podcast. Uh, welcome to this bonus episode of Monster Porn. I'm sure we've already confused any new listeners, but hey, what's new? Thanks for tuning in, and thank you for your continued support. I'll go right into the pandering. Please rate. Please review. Please subscribe. I know, it's a pain in the ass, but it helps a lot. You can write anything. Write all the things you want Puggles to do to you. As long as you give us five stars and review, it really helps us. Do you have anything, Brett? I do. Important things, Matt. Now shush. So many important things. Like, I'm sure they'll come to me in a moment. Uh, if you'd like to be part of our newsletter you can find the sign up on our website at monsterpornpodcast.com for extra content episode announcements and for a forthcoming digital magazine all right on to the show oh patrick what are you doing I'm doing research for my next episode of Patrick McGannon, Paranormal Investigator. Uh, Investigator. I'm hot on the trail of an impossible organism, Brett. A real zoological anomaly. A cryptid! Hmm. Which bestiary dropout are you researching now? I don't think you're hearing me, Brett. I'm about to have a conclusive proof that a previously unknown creature is real! How so, Patrick? Elementary logic, dear Watson. It's a conclusive deduction from the initial premises. Premise one. Scientists and experts are saying that the Kofefe virus that has the world by the basketballs was definitely not genetically engineered by those same scientists and experts, and it definitely didn't escape from the Kofefe virus research lab run by the same scientists and experts only a few miles away where it first appeared. What does this have to do with cryptids, Patrick? Hold on to your horseshoes, Brett. Premise 2. Scientists say that the Kofefe virus genes have a 96% resemblance to bat Kofefe viruses, but the receptor binding motif of the novel Kofefe virus more resembles that of Kofefe viruses found in pangolins. The Kofefe virus has a pangolin spike protein in a horseshoe bat viral body like a... like... like a composite! Uh, Patrick, pangolins are a real animal, not a cryptid. I hate to steal your thunder, but they are known to both science and to Wikipedia. No, but but, but 
you're still not listening! Because it's basically a bat covfefe virus with a pangolin spike protein. It means, it means it must have undergone genomic, genomic recombination in an animal capable of hosting both original viruses, the bat virus and the pangolin virus. So if we take both premises, first, that the covfefe virus naturally mutated in an animal host, and second, that it is a combination of a bat and a pangolin virus, Brett! Do you know what this means? It means he's real! Who's real, Patrick? Zibatangolin! He's a fearsome cryptid from China, scaly and clawed and having enormous bat wings. The Batangolin. Sounds like a chupacabra. Yes! But those are too gamey to go with sweet and sour sauce. Brett, this is big! Imagine if I prove that an actual, honest-to-gosh, cryptid is, is, is real! Given the paranormal erotica books you apparently like, I'm not sure I want to imagine what you'd do with that fact. Oh. Oh, tied up by Batangalins. No, 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 get out of there. No, I have to focus. I am close to a scientific breakthrough here. I cannot be lured away from my fanciful machinations of my first bestseller. Yes, Patrick, focus. Please focus on something that makes my skin crawl less. You're about to post your documentary to YouTube. What's it called, anyway? Kofi Fashions. Of a betangle in. Dawson Watkins so loved his daughter that he took her from the world. About a month ago, Dawson sat in the pews and watched his daughter Ruby get up and sing with her friend Jillian playing the piano. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. They played a worship song Dawson didn't really know or like, but he'd heard it on the radio and the kids were into it. Oceans, by that old megachurch group Hillsong United. He wasn't sure how he felt about that song, or that church. But that was no matter. Weeks later, as Dawson gazed up at the mountain, in the nascent spring snow, what enraptured his brain for the blink of an eye was the moment he looked up at Ruby singing, near the pulpit in her Sunday dress. Hands folded shyly, brown hair pulled back in a ribbon. And all at once he saw that his thirteen-year-old girl was becoming a woman, and a beautiful one at that. And her life flashed before his eyes. The dam of the well of memory burst, and he was overcome with phantoms of Ruby teetering across the living room back on Meadow Street as a toddler, of the miniature pink rocking horse she got on her third birthday, of her and her other friend Maddie singing karaoke in the living room on some Friday after school last year. There was even a flashback all the way to the hospital the night she was delivered. That might have been the last time he remembered crying before today, when he held her for the first time. Dawson saw all this and more almost all at once. The boggling journey a person takes, or the start of it anyway, from birth to adolescence. But it was more than her own journey, too, because she was an extension of his life, and her mother carries. Ruby was the culmination not only of herself, 
but of everything Carrie and Dawson had ever done or wanted. He loved her. He loved her more than he could have imagined. She wasn't perfect. No one was. No one can cast that first stone. But she was a damned good girl, and his heart swelled with pride for her. Dawson recalled this as he hoisted the backcountry pack, heavy with supplies, and she hopped down from the tailgate, where he had just helped her clamp on her cross-country skis. The tuft of her alpaca wool beanie bounced as she hit the ground, and he helped her thread her arms through the backpack straps. There was a little fear in her soft face, rosy in the cold. He wished there wasn't fear. He smiled at her, gave her a nod, and then picked up the twelve-gauge and handed it to his son, Matt, with another nod, more stern than the first. Dawson picked up his hunting rifle and put it on his back. It should be said that Dawson also loved his son, Matt, and dearly, but Matt was a young man at fifteen, and Dawson trusted he could take care of himself, and should be encouraged to do so more and more, accepting more responsibility for himself as he grew up. But Dawson was protective of Ruby. It was different for a young woman. It was beginning to sprinkle spring snow, wet, heavy flakes. Dawson gazed up the mountain. The access road was still closed for winter above the turnout, but they could ski in. Crows called to each other in the deep teal pines as gray swirled overhead. Dawson grabbed his wife Carrie's arms before telling his family, Let's get on it. Losing daylight. Like I said, it should only take us a couple hours to make the cabin. The family of four pointed their skis up the snow-packed mountain road, still technically closed, and began to glide, wet, fat snowflakes smacking against their pale faces. In addition to the usual winter barricade, there was an emergency orange sign posted below the National Forest sign, informing the Watkins that the mountain was closed due to pandemic, and they must return home. They'd had it with the first two pandemics. Dawson was done playing along with people who wanted to close public national forest land because of a bad cold. He was done asking why you could go shop at any big chain store in town, but somehow going on the mountain by yourself was a health risk to the civilized world. Like most people, he had been done with all the idiocracy by Pandemic 2, by which time a lot of people like Dawson just stopped listening to it. He was done getting berated by the people who removed their masks the moment the cameras were off, while food distribution teetered on the brink of collapse and the housing market was completely crashed. He was tired of stewing in the prospect of an actual civil war. It couldn't even be said that money wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. The new money was printed on nothing and worth just about as much. He was done with it all when the mandatory vaccinations went into effect. That set the precedent. The new virus was worse, yes. It caused paralysis in some young people. That was terrible. And he was terrified beyond reason for Ruby and Matt's sakes. Back in Pandemic 2, they mandated the mark of the beast. You couldn't receive the stimulus checks without it in your hand. You couldn't go out of the house without your immunity certificate that it stored. That was the other precedent. Now, to repair the damage that was causing the paralysis, they were implanting neural interfaces right into people's skulls. Granted, so far they were only doing it for people who had had it and suffered the brain damage, 
The electric stimulation to the right parts of the brain could do the miracle of making the lame walk. But how long would it remain elective? It was clear it was more than mere treatment. It integrated the user with artificial intelligence, and they were talking about all of the features it would have in the future iterations, when everyone was fitted with it. It was all too much. Dawson would protect Ruby his own way, in a way that preserved freedom, in a way that honored God. He had always believed in the power of God, and, conversely, of the devil. But in these latter days, he'd seen it. He'd seen signs both of truth and deceit. As Christ had made the lame to walk, now so too had Satan. He'd seen mortal men raised up into the seat of God while speaking with the serpent's tongue. And he himself had seen and been tempted by demons who had come in the guise of angels of light. We want you to ascend, they had said. This struck him with a sense of irony now, as he led his family past the barricade leaving the snowmobile lot on their skis. Is this what you meant? He demanded with a triumphant humor. But then it hit him. What if this is? What if I'm doing exactly what they want? But he quickly corrected himself. No, I've been praying on this. It's God's will. The devil's agents had come to him in the bedroom one morning last week. He had been praying when he went to bed about the implants and about what to do to protect Ruby. And the two angels of light showed up in the morning. He could hardly open his eyes, and he couldn't focus them. But there they were, in a tunnel of light at the foot of the bed. They shone so brightly he couldn't see their heads or faces. But there was a terrible sense of familiarity. He felt oddly flooded with affection for the demons that had been sent to him. They warped and skewed in a weird way, like a projector image cast cockeyed against a wall. When they spoke, the watery speech was impossibly fast. In fact, Dawson couldn't get the words, so much as the meaning just flooded into his mind uninvited like a roaring river of thoughts that weren't his own. The sense of it was, Think of your daughter. Would you not preserve her from this disease? Do you not love her? She is safe if she takes the neural link. Or do you not want that? Do you not want to optimize her intelligence? Do you not wish for her to think as quickly as we do, to succeed in this life? Dawson tried to say, Be gone, Satan. In the name of Jesus, be gone. But he could only think it, and it felt slow and forced compared to what he had just heard in his mind. Do you not love your daughter? Or does such we love you? They said. Who are you? What do you want? He cried out in his mind. Again, what they said flooded into his mind as a slurry of concepts and images and sensations that could only be summarized. The significance of it was, We want you to ascend. We are your parents. They weren't his parents. His dad had passed and was buried in Christ in the Franklin Cemetery. His mom still lived in Sparrowhawk Court came to church and made Sunday dinner every week, at least when a pandemic wasn't declared, and was fifty blocks deep into what was probably her seventieth quilt. These weren't his parents in any sense of the word. Suddenly he could sit up in his bed and did. They were gone and the light was gone. He had told Carrie about this, but not his children. After the demon's visit, he no longer had any doubts. 
this was all the work of Satan. These were the latter days, and Satan himself had come to tempt him, to bribe him using his daughter's well-being. He couldn't stomach the thought of that little watch-face-sized lump bulging in Ruby's scalp. It made him sick. The fear of disease for his daughter's sake tempted him, yes, but he knew there was a better way. There is but only one way, one truth, one life. An armored personnel carrier pulled into the snow machine turnout, squat as an angry toad with those downturned sliver windscreens, body black as an SR-71. The star of the county sheriff was freshly painted on its side. The rear hood sprung open, and two quadcopter drones took flight. The church had started meeting in the rec room in Pastor Preston's basement, after worship had been effectively outlawed, real worship anyway, that is the agape of Christians assembled together in one place for the glory of God. Some allowances had to be made, though, for these bootleg churches. Worship had to be spread out through the week, not just on Sundays, and members had to park at a distance and walk in as discreetly as they could. First Christian had been raided around that time, after meeting in someone's home, and they didn't want the same trouble. The Watkins, the Petersons, and a single middle-aged woman named Kathy met with Preston and his family in the house church that afternoon. After they had all shared in the body of the Lord and exchanged the holy kiss, substituted reasonably, with a contactless handshake, Dawson took to chatting with Pastor Preston. Behind Preston, the shelf of the rec room had been converted to a makeshift altar, with an ornament of a stark wooden cross, and a common print of Heinrich Hoffman's Christ in Gethsemane. I mean, what do you think God wants us to do, Bill? Dawson asked his pastor, his face mask bobbing with the syllables. Dawson had his arm draped over his daughter, who in turn was watching her mother, who was speaking with the Petersons. When you see the signs, let them head to the mountains, it says, the pastor told him through the mask. I don't believe it means literally the mountains, but the message is clearly, get out of town. Don't take part in the world, because the world is about to be destroyed, Dawson. This wickedness won't last forever. The best we can do is keep ourselves apart and keep our hands clean of everything that's going on. The implants, the fool's money, all that. Trust in God, not in man. For there will be false signs, even raising the dead. As Dawson thought on this and gazed down at the tawny top of his daughter's head, it occurred to him that she wasn't watching her mom. No, she was surreptitiously watching the Peterson boy, Noah. It made him smile a little, but it also made him nervous. Still, if she was going to get interested in boys now, and he had to accept that she was. Noah wasn't the worst one she could be interested in. Dawson liked the Petersons. When he looked up again, he caught Bill Preston's eyes, also coming back from Ruby, and the pastor was fighting off a knowing smile. They grow up fast, Dawson, he said. It's for them that I hope in the day of the Lord, that I hope for the end of the present darkness. Only in Christ will they find their peace. 
Dawson reached and shook his pastor's hand. Firm and honest. A real handshake. No more pretending. The pastor's eye glinted as he gave Dawson a friendly nod. I'm scared, Dad, Ruby said suddenly. Dawson raised his head. She was ahead of him as he was closing up the rear. Matt was leading. Carrie turned to Ruby and held her arm. Honey, we all are, she said. But we're going to be much better off once we make the cabin. We're going to be okay because God is with us. Jesus will never abandon us, honey. Your mom's right, Dawson affirmed, drawing up and stopping behind them. Matt stopped and turned to watch. Tell you what, Carrie said. Why don't you sing a song? That will bring us comfort until we get there. Yes, good idea. Dawson agreed and nodded ahead at the trail. Matt saw this and turned and began forging the way again. Reluctantly, Ruby began to follow, with her mother's encouragement. Dawson smiled weakly. Ruby began to sing, her voice a little shaky. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. Her mother began to sing with her. About twenty more minutes to the cabin, I bet, Dawson thought. Not too bad. What's that noise? Matt interrupted. Carrie clearly opened her mouth to chastise him, taking him to be mocking his sister's singing. But that wasn't it. And now she heard it, too. Dawson looked around through the trees, and then up in the sky. A quadcopter drone passed over the treetops, seen only for a moment between them. Drone, Dawson declared, and he drew his hunting rifle from his back. What are you going to do? Carrie asked him urgently. Are you going to shoot it? Is that a good idea? I'm going to do what I gotta do if it comes by again, he answered. Are they looking for us? She said in a hush. Dawson only made a noise. He didn't take his eyes off the churning clouds, because he heard it becoming louder again. He raised his rifle. Everyone's eyes darted over the treetops. Dawson motioned with his hand for his family to press themselves back against the trees to the right. He moved under the bough of the tree nearest him on the left, and kept his gun up. It stopped in the clear between the trees, humming, with red and green strobes flashing. It's not leaving, Matt said toward his father. Dawson held his finger up to his mouth. He had no reason to think that the thing was miked, but he had no particular reason to think it wasn't either. Dawson held it in his sights and waited, but it wasn't moving. He could probably see them already. Dawson shot. One of the rotor arms exploded and the copter began to list. He shot again. It appeared to hit the black globe of glass that sheltered the camera, shattering it which was a good thing, but again it remained aloft. He shot one more time. Another prop shattered, and it fell into the snow. Dawson skied up to it and shoved it down into the snow with his pole. Come on, he said, glancing over his family's faces. We gotta keep going. Is there another one? Matt wondered. I think I hear another one. Just keep going, Matt, Dawson said. I'll keep watch. You just keep leading the way. Indeed, there was a faint hum, 
perhaps closing in on the position of the fallen one. They made it clear of the sight before the second drone arrived, but the snow was falling heavier and the wind was beginning to kick it around. Dawson considered it God's grace, at least, that they had made it to the last stretch before the weather turned against them. But unless the storm covered their trail, it wouldn't be too difficult for the law to trace them to the cabin now, if the law wanted to do so. Hell, once they identified the Suburban, it wouldn't take much to link it to the cabin with the same title holder. Dawson had hoped his family was such small fish with everything going on right now, that they could just slip away and no one would care. But now he had shot down a sheriff's drone. He chastised himself for overreacting. But was it an overreaction? If the drone was looking for them in the first place, they had already made it onto the law enforcement's priority list. Shortly, they had crossed into the clearing where the cabin was situated. Dawson got out of his skis and dug out the front door with his gloved hands, as snow had drifted nearly halfway up it. When the door was reasonably cleared, and they stumbled into the shadowed interior by the wood stove in the kitchen, the mix of familiar musty smell and the unfamiliar circumstance mingled to create an uncomfortable feeling. Can we get a fire started? Carrie asked her husband. He nodded and went back out the door. Moments later, he yelled and then hurried back in, his face red and distorted with anger. What is it? Carrie demanded. Some yahoo stole our firewood, he said, shaking his head. Damn it, it's getting on twilight. It's going to be hard finding deadfall in the snow. Matt, he said, and his son looked up from the chair at the dining table, where he was already removing his boots. We're going to see what there is. Come on. Carrie clutched her hands in front of her face, but was trying to hold herself together. Let me see that, Dawson said to Matt. What, Dad? He answered. The chair, son. Ruby, taking her boots off in the corner, raised wide eyes and wondered, meekly. What for? Matt passed him the chair, which he took out the door and swung against the wall. He did it twice and the legs began to splinter. A third time, and it came to pieces. He brought in the remains of the chair and dropped them by the stove. Well, that'll get you started, he said to Carrie. I'll be having my breakfast standing tomorrow, I suppose, he joked with grimness. Come on, Matthew. Bring the saw. We may have to burn it green. Yes, sir, Matt answered. Shoes, Dad? Yeah, Dawson answered. A while later, it was twilight, and blowing the already fallen snow around, as father and son made trips between the woods and the cabin with their snowshoes. As it was, Matt had taken the sawing boughs off of some pine trees, while Dawson ported them back to the cabin. They had found several bare, beetle-killed trees, which were now saving their hides. The boughs from them should burn easily. They hadn't, however, forgotten the drone, and the shotgun rested against the tree by Matt, and Dawson had his hunting rifle. Matt heard something coming from the wrong direction to be his dad, so he picked up the shotgun and watched. His mind went to the wildlife, but somewhere in the back, he knew bear and moose weren't the only threats to his family now. Indeed, it was a human-sized blotch that appeared in the blowing snow. Who's there? Matt said, deepening his voice. I'm armed. What emerged into sight was a man in black, head to toe, held up on snowshoes. 
He wore body armor and a helmet, on the side of which was the sheriff's star. His eyes were hidden behind red ski goggles, and a ventilator mask covered his face. Sheriff's Department! The man yelled, muffled by the mask. Drop your weapon or I'll shoot you dead! Up in the clearing, Dawson heard the sheriff's man yell this and froze. Mouth hanging open, he turned back toward the tree line as he heard Matt yell, Dad! And then there was a gunshot. Matt! He screamed. He dropped the armful of wood and stumbled back toward the trees. Matt! He yelled again. He'd taken the rifle from his back. Matt came running, inasmuch as one can run in snowshoes, his eyes huge and face white. Matt! Dawson said. Thank God! His heart fell back into place, but at the same time horror nodded him as he wondered what Matt had to do and what it would mean for them. Then the man in body armor came out of the woods behind him and shot with his pistol. Blood sprayed from Matt's forehead and he fell face down in the snow. Dawson screamed like an animal and shot at the man before he could even think about it. Almost faster than he could see it happen, the man flicked his forearm, seemingly deflecting his bullet with his wrist guard. He couldn't have done that intentionally, no man could, he thought, and he aimed for the helmet and shot again. This time, the man had not reset his stance from the first deflection, and it caught him less prepared. The shot glanced on his helmet, tossing it off his head and starting him reeling. On the man's shaved crown, Dawson could see the big, flat-topped lump of the implanted interface. The AI had controlled the man's arm. Dawson dove and slid downhill into the draw. The trees were closer than the cabin for cover, and he would have to double back. Heavenly Father, forgive me, Dawson muttered as he passed into the trees. He heard a shot that was not his own. The hearty thock of the bullet hitting the tree told him it must have been meant for him. Forgive Matt, he mumbled, except my boy. Tears in his eyes, he turned, situating himself behind a tree trunk to face his pursuer. A shot hit the tree before he could even see the man. He pulled his head back, panting. God help me, he prayed. He recognized that with the AI integration, this man should not be missing a shot, and he wondered if that last round was merely meant as intimidation. And given that, there was no way out from behind this tree. Shit, 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 Dawson found himself muttering. He noticed in the trees there stood a couple gray in the blowing snow and obscured, but he knew the outlines of the demons who came to him in the evil dream. They were holding hands in between two pines. He couldn't see their faces or what they were wearing. One of them spoke to him in that bizarre flurry of ideas that was speech without speech, and the meaning was this. Will you die in your obstinacy? Will your family, said the second. Get behind me, Satan. Dawson growled through clenched teeth. God, Lord Jesus, he prayed. Don't let me die in this. Not for me. For my daughter and my wife. But whatever you will, Lord, just preserve my family. That's all I pray. He thought of Matt and choked. Face pulled tight in a terrible grimace. Dawson spun around and fired on the sheriff's man, who again waved his arm just in time to catch the bullet. The brass glinted in the armor padding of his forearm. The man aimed his pistol. Dawson fired again. He thanked God for his marksmanship. 
He shot and hit the man's pistol, which flipped out of his hand. Without a pause, he pulled out and extended his nightstick, still trudging towards Dawson. Damn it, I don't want to kill you! Dawson shouted. Drop your weapon or I will kill you dead! The man returned. Damn it! Dawson swore, spit flying from his frigid lips. God forgive us our trespasses, he muttered, and he shot. The man's AI swatted the bullet midair with the nightstick. The round stuck, embedded therein. Dawson fired again while the man was recovering. A red dot appeared in a flash on the man's forehead. Spray issued out behind him. He fell, and Dawson ran for the cabin, not looking back. He yelled into the cabin, snot pouring from his face. Carrie! Ruby! He ran room to room and found no one. No, 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 he mumbled. He hurried back to the door and examined the snow. He didn't see any clear sign anyone had come or gone, in addition to their arrival and his departure with Matt. Carrie! He cried out one more time. By the wood stove, the two false angels of light stood still. He saw them in his peripheral vision first and turned, pointing the rifle at them. He could not make out their faces or what they wore, but their heads were distorted, long. Their limbs were skeletal. What do you want? He demanded of them. Where's my daughter? What'd you do? Their swift, slithering speech coursed through his mind. We have removed her from you. We gave you this choice and you've chosen poorly. Will you not be improved? Dawson shot into the mail. The bullet passed right through into the wall. The air grew heavy, but they did not speak. He turned his back on them and went to the table where he pulled out one of the remaining chairs and turned on his bite. He had had the bite off for two days now, afraid of the geotracking and the microphone. But now he had no more reason to care, and he had a use for the tiny flex tablet. It wrapped around his wrist like a snap bracelet, making contact with a circuit board tattoo that had been under his sleeve. The screen turned red, then showed the manufacturer's logo, and then the carrier's logo. And then finally, he was presented with the home screen. He brought up Facebook. It had been so long since he had been on there that he was surprised to see his profile picture was still set to an image with the caption Jeremiah 2515 printed on it. The picture was CG art of a cup or chalice with a stylized flame within it. He started a live stream. Friends, family, neighbors in Christ, this is Dawson Watkins. If you happen to see this, please save it. Back it up somehow. Before it gets taken down. Whatever happens, foremost, I want you to know that they shot first. They shot first. He began to weep and dug his thumb into his eye and continued. This wasn't supposed to happen. It's what God wills. What God wills, oh God. He spoke for about ten minutes, explaining what had happened. And then he tore the device from his arm and threw it down on the table as the screen went black. It wasn't long before the engine noise descended upon the cabin. Glancing out the window, Dawson saw the drones and the snow machines and the riders thereon. All of them black horsemen. Sheriff's Department, declared an amplified voice. Lay down your weapon and exit the cabin with your hands above your head. Where's my daughter? Dawson called to them. There was a long pause and then the voice returned. Ah, I don't know, Dawson. Are you alone in there? 
Dawson looked at the false angels, still silent and watching. Oh, very, he muttered. He said to the demons, his voice breaking. Will you give her back if I do what you want? He waited. Why are you silent now? He screamed. She never was, they answered. God protect my family, Dawson prayed in a low voice. They are not and will not be, said the demons. We are and we love you. Dawson threw his gun and stood in the window, convulsing and snot running on his face as he raised his hands. An eager marksman put a bullet through his skull. Dawson Watkins opened his eyes with the bleariness of one who has slept in late and missed much. It was bright and it hurt to focus. His head felt heavy and his scalp burned. Lord Jesus, he wondered into the face of the light, but his wonder did not last long. Two figures moved toward him in the overwhelming brightness. The false angels. He squinted and tried to force his eyes to focus. Am I dead? he demanded. Their words poured out like water. He has rejected enhancement continually. The other said to him, We gave you choices, surrounded me with people, and you have chosen again and again the wrong people. Who are you? Dawson demanded. What is this? Am I dead? God! God! There is no God here, they told him, smiling with unmoving lips. Not in this world. Their long heads began to come into focus. Something like a man and a woman, wearing gaudy headdresses that glinted with silver and gold. Instead of eyes, they had golden cylinders covered in circuit patterns protruding from their sockets. We want you to ascend. You must accept the enhancements, they told him again. This is part of growing up, that each person must choose to accept the communion, just as the people who made the choice for the first time back then. We have surrounded you with the images of people to appear as your friends and family and yet you have chosen the wrong allegiances repeatedly in the historical simulation. Your mind and body will continue to reject it unless you make the right choices. You cannot succeed in this life without it. Don't you want to do well? They were horrible. Two emaciated, wan beings staring down at him, deep lines in their faces and their scalps covered in technological rubbish that sparkled in the harsh light. He knew them now, his real parents or, as they were properly called, not being his biological parents, not in this society, his social mentors. Dawson, who was not Dawson, reached for his temple, his child-sized hand shaking as he lay on the bed with the two figures hovering over him, and his fingers found the smooth, cold finish of metal and plastic.
I posted my documentary about the Matangalins to YouTube. Congratulations. Huh? Oh. Huh? Oh my. What? What? What is this? What's what? Well, uh, YouTube put a notice under my video that links to the Wikipedia article on Batangalins that says Batangalins are definitely not real, not a real animal, and only cuckoo crazy tinfoil hat racists who hate Chinese people talk about the Batangalins online! Well, at least they didn't take it down. Oh my gosh! They did take it down! Who oh, knows? I put days of work into my documentary. Oh, bother. Here's a method, YouTube says. Uh, the reasons are, um, one, it spreads dis disinformation to men about Kofefe 19. Two, it spreads disinformation about disinformation to men. And three, it's offensive to human intelligence. Gosh, that last one's a little insulting. <laughs> The world deserves to be enlightened! Brett! Wait, what is that sound? <laughs> Somebody's playing the song of my people! Wherever freedom of speech and thought is trampled on, there I am! So here I am! Yeah! Alex Jones, writing on free speech Pteranodon. You bet your blessed American ass the world deserves to be enlightened, Patrick! You... you know my name- Hold on, the grown-ups are talking! You kids at home might not think that knowing about the Batangalian and Machine Elves and Obamagate are civil rights, but I'm here to tell you that conspiracy theory is a human right given to Moses. By God, when Ginger Head Giant still walk the earth? Who is he talking to? He's giving a PSA to the wall. The more you know, kids, I know so much sometimes, I know two completely contradictory facts at once. It takes a healthy and strong mind to entertain two opposite facts at once, which I do by taking Mon Milk exclusively from the Fact Battles Supplement Store. Oh, my mistake, it's an advert. You know, Mr. Jones, if you're going to advertise on our show, we expect a regular sponsorship deal. Rawr! Mr. Jones' speech is free! And Mr. Jones speaks what he will, really well! Patrick, I'm no stranger to deplatforming. I've been banned from every platform known to man. Which is why I'm writing free speech pteranodon. So I don't let my feet touch on anything that might be considered a platform. Do you boys know about the interdimensional pedophiles? What does the Democratic primary have to do with it? Mr. Jones, Patrick is trying to get the word out to the world about the Batangalin. Batangalins? They're a fine element 115 from its scales at Los Alamos. They're the platform in you because you're close to the truth, Patrick. The Chinese, they fear the Batangalin. He's a symbol of hope in the Wigger concentration camps. That's why they don't want the truth out on Kovefe 19. The legend of the Batangalin lives on wherever there's oppression. Let his light shine in the darkness. Let his name be whispered forever in underground forums. May he forever wrestle the Pooh Bear in the street graffiti of the wet markets that sell his meat. May he reign in Hollow Earth forever. Uh, amen? Amen, I guess. Waffles and glory. Phone Podcast is a production of Fact Battles. Today's story was Many Things About Tomorrow by Brett Norwood. I know some things about tomorrow. Like how tomorrow's just a day, but later. Like it's all the same fucking day, man. And when the moon Nazis come down to take back Mogul Member, I'll be ready. I'll hit your ass.
Good day, Monster Baiters. Brett here. If you enjoyed this episode of Monster Porn, please make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcast app, and please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit of your support helps this show. Apple Podcasts user Prankboy from Australia says, Well, honestly, this podcast is just amazing. The stories are always interesting and have you coming back for more. The cast have relaxing and soothing voices, and you can listen to them pretty much anywhere you are. Five out of five. Definitely recommend. Thank you, Prankboy. That's awesome. We appreciate your support. Also, be sure to drop your email at monsterpornpodcast.com to get our newsletter, bonus content, and our forthcoming digital magazine format. You can follow us on social media and on the street. We like creepers. We don't judge. That's it. Thank you for tuning in. And until the shark angels come, stay weird and Godspeed, strange cowboy. If you'd like to be part of our newsletter, you can find the sign up. Uh, I didn't write this. I <laughs> don't think. Oh, God, that was just not fucking Patrick. That was like some weird chick voice. I don't think you're. I don't think you're hearing me, Brett. There we go. I don't want to be hearing you, Patrick. Like, it's too late for this shit. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's not too late for this. I just. I soothe people by not my voice for nighttime bedtime stories. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> Did Brett just kill himself or did he kill Patrick? Find out next episode. (laughs) I don't think you're hearing me, Brett. I suck. This voice is just driving me crazy. (laughs) Driving you crazy. (laughs) I was trying to think, like, how would you say it, like, quieter? Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't think you're, I I don't think you, God damn it. I used to be able to do a calm Patrick voice. My, my, my name is Patrick McGannon. I don't think you're hearing me, Brett. There There we go. I am close to a scientific breakthrough here. I cannot be lured away from my fanciful machinations of my first bestseller. God, that was a hard sentence to do, Patrick. (laughs) Hold on, the girl. Uh, That wasn't right. (laughs) (laughs) The more you know, kids. I know so much I sometimes know two completely different. No, that's not what it says. Conspiracy theory is a human right given to Moses by God when finger no not finger headed. God damn it. That's close. By God when finger headed giant No, it's dead finger headed again. <laughs> damn it. Well, that by God was perfect. By God <laughs> By God when finger headed giant God damn it. It's like you're so excited to...